cliffcentral.com. On a sunny day in October 2016, my next guest was shot nine times near her home in Yanga in Cape Town. The bullets flew into her stomach, her side, and her chest. And she said, she'll explain it to us in a moment, but she felt this burning sensation in her body and saw blood coming out. The guns were not stopping. It was chaos. She said she could see people dead. She could see blood everywhere and thought to herself, okay, so what happens now? Well, she had just enough money in her wallet to hire a taxi to take her to ICU. And she passed out on the way to Mitchell's Plain Hospital. The taxi driver thought she was dead, so he pushed her out of the vehicle. She woke up and thought, great, I'm here, and then passed out again. You know, you read a story like that, and it just blows your mind because she's alive, and she's out there speaking to people every day about her experiences and plenty more. She's got a business that we'll talk about in a second, too, but her name is Lorna Mlonzi, and she's with me today. Lorna, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show, and thank you very much. What an absolutely harrowing story. My God. Thank you so much, Gareth. Um, thank you so much for the invite. Um, unfortunately, there's so many other stories like this within townships that happen, and we just never hear about them. And for me, yeah. No, no, no. I, I was just going to say that I, I've left out a lot of the story because I want you to tell all of us, you know, how it went from there. Because obviously, there are, you know, just as there are bad people in the world, there are good people in the world, and we'll we'll yeah. focus on the good. But just tell me about the uh, the way you grew up. I mean, you you obviously lived in Nyanga, which is well known for being a very dangerous place in South Africa. I mean, the gangsters all over the place and guns all over the place. And, you know, yeah. it's not like you were looking for trouble, by the way. You were just walking in your own neighborhood. You were just walking. Yeah. Like an, a normal 24-year-old would do um, on a Saturday um, evening. So, like, it happened pretty fast. Um, the only thing that I can remember um, about the actual event is just too much blood, um, the guns blazing, um, the bullets didn't stop. Um, like, it, it took, like, a whole 30 minutes straight, um, and there was just, they were shooting and, and, and open fire. Um, a lot of people that were at the scene, pretended to like not know things. And this is the nature of, of things in townships. They pretended to not see like what happened. Right. So for me, knowing that like growing up in a township, my mom um, ran a tavern by even like at night and then by day she had a hair salon. So I was already three when I saw my first dead body. So guns and those kind of things sort of become like, second nature to you because you know they're going to shoot it's you hear gunshots on a daily so i wasn't sort of scared or shocked with the gunshots but i think what scared me the most was seeing the blood because then i thought okay loss of blood means um so many things um my life you know so with seeing that blood i think that's what created the burning sensation in my mind and the only thing I could think of was, okay, how do we, how do we save ourselves from this? You know, I wasn't going to wait for an ambulance because I know already this is the number one most dangerous um, area within this country. So mm-hmm. how am I going to move from here to make sure that I don't lose a lot of blood? Right. I just, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, for, for m- most of us, we are in the fortunate position. We haven't actually been shot. I mean, what does it feel like? Do you remember anything about how it felt? 
the actual, it takes time for you to actually feel if anything's happening within your body. I think it's, it's more of the reaction from your body itself when you see yourself bleeding from being shot. Then I think the, the burning sensation starts. I'm not sure whether that's the gunpowder or what is that, but also it does have an effect when like after a couple of weeks, the incident happened. You know, I, you could smell like when I sweat the gunpowder. It was so different. It was an experience that I had never had before. Um, so the sort of gun wounds also, they didn't take a while to, to repair. It's only my surgeries that I had because I had to have a splenectomy, stenectomy and a laparectomy. Um, I'm not sure the other Tommy, but I hope it was a girl. <laughs> so there was just some, <laughs> you know. But um, I think, like, being shot and surviving sort of has taken away a lot of fear for a lot of things. Wow. Um, okay. Before we even get into that, I just want to, just for a minute, get my head around this incident. Yeah. So you were shot nine times. Now, you yeah. know, to be shot nine times, people really have to be aiming at you. I mean... You know, if it was once a stray bullet, we hear about these amazing situations where people survive when a stray bullet goes, grazes the, their cheek or whatever. But to be shot nine times and in your trunk of your body is, that's, that's purposeful. These people, these people who shot you, I don't know whether you know them. I don't know whether you know who they were. I don't know if you found up subsequently, but that's, that's pure malice, right? I mean, that's just, they didn't have a beef with you personally. They were no. just, violent thugs who decided violent. it was time time and to use their guns on an innocent person shooting people that were actually within the same location so they came there to shoot people that were actually fighting with them on a gangster fight so while we were walking the four people that were shot actually died on the scene and I was one of the surveillance that um, caught um, bullets within um, the shooting. You were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. 100%. And, and I think what the reason why I, was, I got shot nine times is because there were like 16 of them. So I probably got the least amount of bullets because the people that were lying down there, there were 16 men with multiple types of guns because like my, I checked my hospital sort of documents and there's a discharge letter there that says that they found multiple types of bullets within the nine bullets. And when I asked people like after the incident, people that saw anything to say, look, it's not, it's, it's not me coming in from working with an investigation. Cause I know it's not going to get anywhere. I mean, this is our South African police we're talking about. It'll be 20 years until they can just figure out where did the guns come from? So I'm just trying to find out for my own closure, just to understand, am I safe in this neighborhood now? You know, because when things like that happen, you also worry about, okay, now I was caught in, in, in this scenario. Do these people think that I know them or I've seen something? And what does this say about my safety and my, the safety of my family? So I had to sort of start asking people, look, how many people were there? Did you see, were they in the bucket? Were they walking? Um, what are the different types of age groups, you know, and uh, the more I asked people, they said there was like 16, um, like gang members in total and all of them had, um, two guns each and they were 
they opened fire outside of a house that we were walking across. I, I don't know how you managed to survive because I only read out at the beginning the first stage of, of this horrible story where you're, you're shot, you manage to get yourself a taxi. The guy in the taxi takes you until he thinks you've died in the back. Then he throws you out of the taxi and you wake up again. I mean, what happened? What happened from there on? Because that's already miraculous that you managed to wake up. Did he just dump you on the side of the road? So it was before you can actually get to the paramedics and the emergency um, room entrance at Michigan Hospital. There's like this long driveway from the actual robots because it's like a bit stretched out um, mm. from the robots as you enter the actual hospital yard. So immediately when I saw, okay, shot, I'm bleeding, people are dead. I thought, okay, hospital. I then picked up my phone in my pocket while lying down, called my mom, but then I realized, okay, I don't feel like I'm going to make it. Like I can feel my body. I've got a very close relationship with um, myself. So I would listen to my intuition and I would listen to what my body is telling me right now. So I, I felt like I was not going to make it because I kept losing a lot of um, energy, breath, and then I was like, you know what, mom, I will do my best to get myself to hospital. Why don't you rather meet me there? Because I'm pretty sure I don't want to, I don't want them to delay me based on medical aid and identification. So please bring my ID and my medical aid card because it was a Saturday afternoon. I wasn't out with an ID and medical aid. So sure. once I dropped that call, I asked people that were around now the scene. So everybody has gone, people are dead and people are like, trying to see who identifying bodies. So I asked them, can you, can you get me a taxi? I've got money in my pocket. If you can take out, I've got about um, 200 bucks. So there was a point where I had to negotiate for a pay, like to take off. I got my pair of shoes with the cash because apparently the guy wanted about 250 rands just to get me from where I was to the hospital. So I said, you know what, dude, take the shoes, like take the phone. Um, take all of this, just get me to the nearest hospital, which is Misha's plane, please. So on the way, because I was like now, okay, you know what, let me actually just relax because I have been sort of trying to stay alive and, and, and keep my body at a certain um, sort of pace in a certain posture. So as I yeah. can see that we're approaching the hospital, so I then got um, subconscious. So I think in his mind, he thought, wait a minute, this person is now dead. I probably have to give him a statement and I don't actually know what happened. And this is the nature of things in townships. Like they don't, people don't want to even say this is what happened. I mean, this is what you saw. You can just literally just say what you saw. It's not about saying the wrong thing to whoever or putting your life at risk. Unbelievable. So the guy then pushed me out. So I think me, my body hitting the ground sort of then brought me back into a little bit of conscious and I could see the actual... Um, lights for when the helipads has to get on top. So I saw those lights and I was like, okay, yes, that looks like a hospital. And then I started crawling to the emergency. Mm -hmm. and that's when the paramedics got me. And I think about 10, 15, maximum 20 minutes later, then my mom got to the hospital. because so she had then started, she went to the scene and then arrived there. I had already left. And then from there, she went straight to the hospital. You know, 
<clears throat> this is absolutely horrific, and I've got goosebumps just thinking about it now. So you're bleeding. You've got nine bullets that have been shot through you. Some of them are still lodged in you. How you stayed conscious enough to even – I mean, first of all, can I just say that it is a pretty dismal state of affairs in the world where when someone is shot, they can't get help for free, that you have to throw your shoes and your phone and 200 rand into the mix – just to get someone to take you to hospital. That tells you a lot about supposedly Ubuntu and humanity, right? Straight yeah. up. I mean, that's just awful. Second of all, you're trying to, to figure out your way. You're very lucid. You're very sensible for someone who's been shot. Most people would just lie there. I think the first thought after being shot was like, okay, wait, we've been shot. And usually people who get shot, they die. And I feel like I haven't done enough with my life for me to die right now. So I said a little prayer, God, God, please spare me this life because there's so many things that I need to do. You know, there's so many things that I haven't accomplished um, at that age. I didn't feel like it was time for me. So I guess in turn, that also manifested and gave me the strength and the ability for me to follow my intuition to survive and to be here today. Okay, so your mom, your mom comes in. Were you yeah. conscious at that point, or were you were you a? a, a, a um, no, at that point, they I was on drips on everything, but I remember them trying to find all the sort of the bullet uh, wounds, like where has the bullet entered, and was there any that they exited, and as they were starting to sort of prepare me for a laparectomy and a splenectomy to remove my spleen because it was damaged from the bleeding. They then realized that at Mitchell Spleen Hospital, actually, they don't have an intensive care unit. So now, so now you have these doctors who are trying to do a surgery and there's no ICU. So there is not enough resources to help me. So they have I mean- to do some, yeah. Oh they, they just couldn't, they couldn't say, no, we can't do this. And for me, the, the distance between Nyanga and Kurutuskir, because I know Kurutuskir is the best, the distance between there and Michi's plane was like, okay, I'm not going to make 30 minutes on this car. It needs to be anything between 15 and 22 minutes. I don't know why I had those numbers, but I, I was calculating each and every oh, step. Okay, every so I, I just want to, you, you, you are unconscious, you're waking up, you're Going unconscious again. I mean, this is all just yes. horrific. Yeah, it was very traumatic. People crying. Um, at some point, I don't know who got this information that apparently I'm I'm dead and I didn't make it from the shooting. And then it, it spiraled through social media, through my circle of friends and people that knew me. And in the area, everyone had thought that I am not alive. And they've been like putting out posts to say, rest in peace, Lorna. This was now between the 1st of October and the 3rd of October. Because nobody really knew. My mom tried, my mom did her best to sort of keep it a secret because she didn't understand anything. That was before I even told her that I was not even part. I don't know these people. I don't know where they came from. Um, we were minding our business. And then people started shooting. So after, I think it was now on on the second, which was the Sunday, the Sunday morning when they had to take me from Michi's Plain Hospital for ICU now into Krotiskir 
around about yeah. five or six because the the shooting happened around about six to seven just before sunset mm. and then throughout I have been this on this journey them trying to get the bullets out in Mitch's plane and also waiting for an ambulance because that's one thing we also have a lack of resources in our country I almost died because there was not enough ambulance to come and pick me up at Mitch's plane hospital to take me to Protestgate I mean that's like a, a what a 30 minutes 40 minutes drive um Worst case scenario if there's traffic. So now I got to Krotus Gear and one of the bullets had actually lodged like from the back, from my back into my right pericardium. But I don't know how that in while I was in hospital, they never really checked whether if I got bullets from the backside. So this whole time I kept yeah. bleeding through my nose, my mouth and ears. And they didn't know what happened. So I only had like a heart surgery on the 3rd of October and another laparectomy relooked because they, they didn't know what's wrong. Um, and that's when they realized they actually missed two bullets that were sitting in my right pericardium in my heart. So oh there's one that came from the side and then there's one that came from the back. And that's, that's right around the heart. I mean, like, that's, that's, yeah, that's why I had a, that's why I had to have the stenotomy, the open heart surgery. So I've got like sternal wires. Um, because they had to broke my sternum to get to my heart. So literally they had to like open up my body, repair my organs, so to speak. Um, and then close it and then pray that I make it. How, how did you survive? This is unbelievable. Yeah. So I think I, I I really don't know because I don't think also there were like 17 people in my 17 doctors in my medical team. Um, this is Krotis Girna, um, both students, well qualified, um, doctors that are from, um, first world countries who have done this, um, military, etc. So I think they also did what they thought was best. They're doing, but they didn't really think that I was going to make it. But because they're doctors, right? And they have to do this. It's part of their job, you know? And it was like, it was such a surprise to them because I could see when I woke up, I think the first few days, because I wasn't able to really speak. Um, like they kept coming around with multiple other doctors from different types of hospitals to say, yo, we have never seen this. We don't know how this happened, but this, these are the, all the things that we've done. And apart from morphine, tremadol, and the normal pain stuff that you go, you take, there's not much that I really um, took in terms of um, prescription drugs. Um, just, I spent about two weeks in hospital, um, admitted 1st October. Last day was the 13th of October. And I think on the last day of October, I drove to Port Elizabeth because I was like, okay, I don't want to be in Cape Town. I don't want to be in this space. I just wanted to pull off, um, get a breeze. So I went home. Mm. So, yeah, that is how, how the incident happened. Um, my hospital experience was a normal public hospital, Protesgir, um, because they, they decided that after the surgery, it would be difficult for them to move me because they wanted to sort of monitor Hmm. I spent three days physiotherapy, um, learning to like walk again, the breathing, 
getting my diaphragm back into place and um, the talking happened naturally. Um, the first few days I didn't talk because um, I was in ICU and not that I couldn't, but I think it was the machines that they had me on. And um, so I had no loss of memory. Everything was still pretty much the same. I mean, it, it is it is miraculous because, and I don't know whether you're a religious person or not, but I mean, this is just, it's it's extraordinary that you managed to survive all of this. Um, that that with this this horrible, and I, I hate to use the word, but comedy of errors, because the, the, all these things that happened to you along the way that would have prevented most people from pulling through, you know, and they always talk about that golden hour after someone is shot or injured that you have to do what you can in that hour and then you can either save the life or you can't. And I mean, are you, are you a believer? Do you think that this is a miracle? Um, I'm spiritual. Um, I'm not very much religious. So I take whatever teachings works for me within each and every religion. And I'm a big believer of a superpower um, within me that directed me to do things in, in, in that way to get me here. Right, and every sort of error that could have prevented me from surviving or anyone else, those are things that I need to now go back and see how do I then contribute my life towards making those things better. You know, having had experienced those things, it's a, it's, know, a it's a very positive attitude, and and I have to say that I think when you meet with the kind of near death experience that you had, it does kind of shake up your priorities, right? I mean, the things yeah. that mattered to you 15 minutes before and the things that you were worried about, the things that you were thinking about 15 minutes before this, this incident and the stuff that you probably think now, the stuff that you spend your time worrying about now, that the business that you've created, the, the kinds of things that you're trying to do in your life now are completely different. Or am I wrong? Absolutely right. Completely different. I came back and I gave away my car. I was like, I don't need it. I can get mm -hmm. another one. They make thousands of these things every day, you know? Um, and I was, I wanted to spend more time with people. Like I wanted to like, let's be close. Let's leave the chats, you know? And I sort of detached from a lot of materialistic things and worldly things. Um, I started understanding the meaning of life and wanting to understand what is my purpose? What am I here to do? Because I was like, okay, nobody has ever survived nine bullets and nobody has ever had such amount, um, so many amounts of um, surgeries, um, being shot nine times and still has the ability and strength to go back to the same area and stay there and say, okay, how do I change this? How do I prevent another 24-year-old um, girl upcoming from experiencing such things? You know, I mean, it's, it's, these things happen every day. It's just that not everyone is, is strong and courageous enough to come out and say, okay, you know what? I'm going to go out there and I'm going to tell the world it's, this is what's happening. We can definitely transform by changing ourselves first to begin with. And then everything else will fall in place from there. So Lorna, you've, you've started an internet service provider and it's, it's apparently you're already hugely successful and congratulations on that. It's called Sky Internet. Tell us a little bit about that and, and kind of what drew you into the ISP world because, um, you know, there are not a lot of people from Nyanga who are in internet service provider businesses. So maybe you can explain that to me. Funny, <laughs> funny, you, know, you know, when I speak to investors and they're like, okay, yeah, so what's your unique selling point? I'm like, dude, really? I'm from Nyanga. 
<laughs> That's the USP. Okay, so um, matriculated in 2010. Very crazy time for our country. Um, mm. World Cup and all. Um, that's when I knew, okay, look, if you can matriculate 2010, definitely there's something, there's something about you that is kind of special from an IQ level. And then I went because I always wanted to do something within the IT space. But in 2010, I didn't know what ICT was. I was like, okay, this is some twisted thing. So they put a C between the I and the T. Cool. We'll go for it. <laughs> you know, they make these things, they make new things every day and call it a new sector, new market. And it's pretty much an optimized version of the same thing we had. Right. So I then got into ICT. I started ICT at CPUT, which was a Cisco net- networking academy um, program course. Um, that's when I was like, okay, cool. So this is how the internet is built. This is what you use. And after my three years at CPUT, came back, looked for a job. And as you know, you have to have a degree and four years experience. I was like, dude, where am I going to get four years experience? I just came out of varsity. Cell yeah. C was just fairly new at the time. And they were looking for sales and marketing specialists. Um, my mom was like, yo, she needs a job. Please um, get her a job. So after having studied ICT, I then landed a role within telcos and somewhat um, tech companies, but it was more in the business development side of things, never in the technical. Hmm. After being shot, it was a toxic environment for me to go back to the office. Because I felt like I was dealing with a lot of people who do not have awareness of themselves. And this is a big problem, Karen. A lot of people aren't aware of themselves. And then we expect them to be aware of us and the things that are happening around the world in general. What What do you mean by that? I mean, in the office especially, how, because these in are the, the kinds office. of things we can all learn from. Do you mean for the victims of, of violent crime? No, just in general. In, in the office, people are just stuck in a cycle, like especially within the corporate space. You know, it's come to work, do what was you were told to do from day one, go back home. You know, that's why it becomes a toxic environment because this person is set on how things should be within the office based on that cycle and that experience for them and not taking into account that that same thing might not mean the same for another person. So how do we then come together and say, okay, cool, this is how we're going to be innovative and this is how we're going to change certain things within a working environment to make sure that each and every personality, all the different characteristics of people that work here are actually being accommodated within the work environment. Okay. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, that- it's, no, I mean, do, do you, <laughs> I just want to be flippant for a minute here because uh, do you think that being shot gave you any superpowers? I mean, you spoke about how when you were sweating, you could, you could smell the gunpowder. For a, yeah. for a couple of weeks afterwards, but I, I always, <laughs> I always I mean, think I'm AI. Maybe I don't know something. Yeah. Uh, something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, but that would uh, be super cool. That would be super cool. Well, I've had some very phenomenal like experiences that are out of this world. But then when I tell people, it they look at me like I'm crazy. So I decided, you know what? Because that's when I say people are not aware of themselves. So then in turn, they, they are very ignorant of things that they do not know. And so tell, tell, me, tell me about one or two of these experiences that you've had. 
Um, so like I, I stayed between COVID, I was locked down uh, in an apartment in Close Street, which is literally on the corner. And that is literally um, facing the whole of Long Street. So like every time at a certain time on a Thursday, um, there'd be like a lightning strike for me in the sky. And Sky Internet, by the way, I'll, t- I'll, I'll go into that later. Um, that's where the whole Sky Internet name came from. Because, like, it would be so, it's so weird. Even when I pray, if I pray, like, go into a very deep prayer motion, you know, there's going to be, like, a flood somewhere. I don't know how it happens, but it, I will be, like, just walking by the street, and then water will just... So is, is this real, or is this stuff that you're seeing that the rest of us can't? No, it's real. It's real. I even take pictures. Like, I would show people, and then to them, they'd be like, ah, dude, it's a coincidence. Yeah, I mean, you're saying lightning on a Thursday at the same time every week. For me, for me, yes. And then I'd show up and I'm like, yo, this it's not the first time. And they'd be like, ah, it's a coincidence. Lorna, you're a mystic. Because I all, I've always like read sort of esoteric books and into mysticism. So they sure. would, for me, they would be think they would be thinking it's one of my and a lot of my friends usually call me a conspiracy theorist. I mean, it is pretty wacky, but I, I have no reason to disbelieve you. Do you think that there is a message in that kind of thing? Do you think that the universe is trying to tell you something? 100%. Um, it's, it's just each and every soul has a purpose. That's my belief. And right. if you listen closely, there's signs everywhere of what sort of steps you need to take now for your path to make sure that you're, you're fulfilling your soul's mission and purpose within this lifetime. So for me, I've always had those signs in the form of synchronicities, random people coming through, um, and also these um, from a weather aspect or from just a flood or a drain just popping out and blurting water when I was thinking a certain thing and trying to find answers on how do I then navigate that situation. Well, I mean, you, you've certainly found your purpose, and I think you've, you've probably discovered a whole lot of other things too. Uh, do you think yeah. that there are so many people, when you look back on your life before, and, and you think of like just the, the, the chaos of that day uh, when all of these things happen and the way that people lead their lives and the priorities that they have, and, and also, frankly, how the system lets you down? You know, there's no law and order. There's nothing that we do for victims of violent crime in this country. They just have to... They have to pick up the pieces and get on with their lives. And some people are better at that than others. Um, but yeah. you've also you were failed by the hospitals. You know, I mean, the fact that they didn't have what they needed at the Mitchell's Plain Hospital is another failure. Uh, when you think of all those people who are just going about their day-to-day business, almost like they're in a trance, uh, they're not thinking about the big picture that you are because you were nearly killed. Um, how do you feel about that? Because it must be kind of uh, depressing. And do you ever go back to Nyanga and kind of walk around that place where you were shot and try and get it in your head again what, what, what happened and where it all came from and try to piece it together? Or do you just stay away because it traumatizes you too much? No, I go in there. I mean, I sell internet in townships now, so I have to, unfortunately. <laughs> so right. like, I, I believe in, in alchemy in, in everything. Right. Mm. I always believe like there's, there's two sides to everything. Um, I believe in, in the duality, um, only because you have to identify the other thing from the other so that you can mm. then 
sort of label your experience however you want to label it. Um, going back there for me helps me understand how much of a big purpose I have now in my hands, you know, knowing all the things that I know and having experienced what I experienced. How do I now use this time, this chance that I've got again um, within this dimension to navigate all of those little bit of, of, of problems and little bit of failures that I encountered when I was shot? Jeez. Um, any, any kind of things that you would do differently looking back now? Um, any things that you've thought about that, that cause you pain and regret now? Or have you really healed inside and out? I can 100% say I've healed inside and out. Um, I wish I had done more in terms of being aware. Like, for instance, school, like our education system and that indoctrination. You know, I wish I could have at least tried and understood everything that they were trying to indoctrinate from what I understand now and the purpose of it. Because at that time it was just, okay, take in, take in, take in, take in, and not actually trying to ask myself the key questions. Okay, what I'm taking in right now, how is it going to help me navigate in future? How is this going to help me in my life moving forward? How does it help me contribute um, to society? How does it help me be um, a person who actually makes a difference as an individual to the entire collective's um, GDP within the country you know how do I help with um, solving a, a bunch of social problems as an individual that ties into the collective's um, sort of way of doing things so I've healed 100% I go there I don't have like those situations where I cry you know sometimes when I get angry I felt like you know what you can actually take the bullet <laughs> because I feel like a lot of people if they would feel if they would feel what it feels being shot i promise you they wouldn't be mean because i asked myself like the way how i come up to still like be able to come up with so much love and compassion um even after everything that has happened number one i know that i'm a miracle and number two i know that there's definitely something special here uh number three being the black first black african female Intel telecommunication to start a company from subsea document paper stage into a business operation. Um, so God is on to something here. And I can tell you now for free that politics is not going to be the one that's going to change things for us here. Well, I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I meet people every day who love bitching and complaining about the politicians and they should do this and they shouldn't do that. And this one's good and that one's bad. But actually, I mean, there were no politicians that would have helped in your situation. No, there are no politicians. They're not waiting no. on the street corner trying to fend off gangsters, right? No, no, no. I, unfortunately, it wasn't voting season there, so the ambulance yeah. went around voting. <laughs> Tell me, do you, do, do you worry about all these people who are still stuck in environments like that? I mean, you know, family, yeah. friends. So I do what I do every day. Right. So I do what I do every day to... to to try and sort of take my story, um, tell it to people so that they can see. Like, I'm exactly as probably a 30-year-old right now. There's no difference other than the things that I know. Mm. So the only difference here is information, right? Information is everywhere in the internet. But how do you utilize that information 
to your own personal good? How do you make it work for you? Right. So by me doing everything that I'm doing now, um, I'm hoping that I'm communicating and I'm trusting that I am communicating to a, a black female who's out there struggling, whether it's not from a traumatic experience from being shot, but we've got um, gender-based violence. We've got uh, so many other things that people go through on a daily basis that we don't take into account that this is eating up on our society and it's eating up on the communities actually coming together and working to transform their own communities. Well, you certainly are doing that and um, you're helping people to get uh, the information and the connection that they need in order to be able to participate in the business world. So you're doing um, a much bigger job than you could ever have foreseen. I, I love your story. I find everything about it hugely inspiring. I think you have a terrific sense of humor about it too. When people say things like bite the bullet or I'll take the bullet on this one, do you laugh to yourself because yeah. maybe they don't know your story and if they don't know yeah. You're the only one who can find it funny. <laughs> I was actually doing a, a shoot with uh, Shahan from ENCA, and yes. he was quite shocked. He kept asking, why are you laughing when you tell the story? I said, why not? Because it's funny now because I've healed, you know? Yeah. Once you start getting things to not affect you from an emotional state and understand that it was an experience, what lessons did I come out of that? Right, so that's my that's my chat, like, what did I learn from that experience? Do you? you know, I learned often, being, yeah. Sorry to interrupt you. Do you do you think sometimes when you see someone in the shops or walking in the streets that that person could be the one who pulled the, the, the trigger on one or two of those bullets that went through you? I don't even think about that. that. You don't let it take up any of your time? No, no, no. I like. I always think about, okay, cool. How do I get Sky Internet in Congo? That's all I think about. <laughs> Like seriously, that's all I think about. I always think about okay, cool. Um, gangs, unfortunately, we're gonna have to be real here, Gareth, because gangsterism, what I've understood, so I did those things occurred to my mind, I think, the first six months, mm. and then I got a in February 2017, after being shot 2016, I got a role to move to London, Chevron. Right, mm-hmm. as an accountant, um, account manager. And my mom was like, You're gonna move to London, you've just been shot, you had surgery, blah, blah, blah. So, okay, I was like, This is actually a sign for me of what I can do. So, what am I gonna do about it? And what I've understood from gangsterism is this this is just wanting power, this is feeling powerless in a society that is not accommodating you. So, how do you then take back your power? Obviously, you're going to try and impound that on the people that are less fortunate than you so that you can feel some sort of power. Mm-hmm. I even said, you know, there's, there's a whole thing in, in, in townships where they start collecting um, protection fee money from tax shops. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know, I, I tried to even get all of those people together because I remember I don't fear anything now. I've been shot, so what's the worst that can happen? You know, call the gangs. Let's have a meeting. I want to talk to you. <laughs> Don Polion is here. <laughs> so, what, what, did, what did you do at these meetings? I asked them, like, don't you guys want to do a security company, an armed response company? Who are the people that break in the houses? It's you, right? And this is how the system works. The system will make you fear the system so you can start paying the system. Mm-hmm. So you don't have to be resistant to the system. You gotta work with the system. Because it's there, it's existing. And there's also the actual 
were um, world, the universe governed by universal laws that is still also in existing outside of this system that they've created and made you to believe and form part of it and are consistently contributing to the same system that you keep complaining about. So instead of complaining, do something. ADT response, you get the people to subscribe, you give them a little thing that they can beep every time there's a wind blowing through because we know that for a fact that nobody's going to break into that house now that they're actually paying you 300 to keep that house safe. Mm-hmm. And then we take everybody that's doing the house break-ins. They are the ones that's going to watch the neighborhood and drive around in the buckies. We put them on a 7,000 rand stipend or whatever minimum right. wage stipend. We end the issue. And then what we do is with the guys that have been arrested, the company itself formed by these gangsters can actually write a testimonial to say, this guy has done community work, so forth and so forth for this 24 months as a security um, armed response, whatever. And they can hand that to the police for a police clearance. And you can get your name cleared off the criminals list or whatever database they keep people that have been arrested before. Long shot, but possible. I think that sounds, I mean, you, you should be a politician, but I don't want you to be, uh, because then, <laughs> then you'd stop solving problems and you'd start making problems. That's what they do. But I mean, this is, I don't believe, me any, I honestly don't believe in politics, but some systems have to be in place. Mm. Um, that's just my thing. I don't believe in, in, in politics. Look, I was raised, um, by two black, a single parent actually, and a sperm donor. And I was raised ANC, ANC, ANC. But then I was like, okay, cool. Now I have a decision to make. What is actually happening? Let's review. And I foresee the future of this country being saved actually by young, innovative entrepreneurs. I, I see, I see us being the leaders of tomorrow. I see us running businesses that are impactful, commercially viable, solving huge social problems. That in turn, people will then make their decisions to say, look, we're tired. We don't want that. We no longer want to, to sit in that non-profit organization, um, state of mind. You know, it, it's so old school. Totally agree with you. And I think we're both on the same page there. Listen, you, you really are awesome. It's lovely to meet you and talk to you. And I'm just delighted that we got to, to share your story with everybody else today. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you so much, Gareth, for the invite. An amazing, uh, what an amazing story. Lorna Mlonzi, and uh, we'll catch up soon. Let me know when you're in Joburg. Okay, we'll do. Cliffcentral.com.